That was nice. Thank you. Well, good morning. Really? I heard people had energy up here in Flagstaff. Good morning. Good. Good to see you. Uh, it's great to be here and great to just see what God's doing. It's amazing to look at a room like this. Uh, the last time I was up visiting Vince and kind of talking ministry, you were in like a double garage uh, a while back. That was a long time ago now, but it's great to be here and to be able to see what God's doing. And, uh, and especially on this Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day. And uh, I'm, I'm married. I've been married for 14 years and I have three daughters. Abby's nine, Caitlin is seven, and Mary is one and a half. I'm a minority in a sorority. That's what I call it. And um, my daughters, especially uh, my, my nine-year-old Abby, she was really just so excited that, that this sermon on Samson, right? Samson and Delilah, if you know any Bible stories, maybe you've heard of Samson and Delilah, that that falls on Valentine's Day. I mean, how cool is that? So she's super excited. So just, just to kind of honor Abby, she's not here right now, but I wanted to get in the Valentine spirit. So, so I've got some gift cards, actually. And so I'm curious... Of among you single folks today, what single folks have a date tonight? Stand up if you've got a date planned tonight. Come on. Nobody. Is there seriously no one? I thought like somebody would. Like not married. You're not married. Is that not the definition of single? You have a date tonight? Get up here. $10, Fire Creek Coffee. Now everyone has a date. Yep, there we go. What's your name? Anthony. Anthony. Way to go, Anthony. By the way, that name thing is cruel. That's a mean trick to play on new people like me. All right, and now married people. Do we need to define what that means? We know married. <laughs> a married people. Um, married people, if you have been married for less than... Five years, stand up. Wow, that's pretty cool. All right, good job. If you've been married for less than two years, uh, stay standing. Wow, okay. Anyone less than a year, stay standing. Holy cow, okay. How long have you guys been married? Are you sure? <laughs> Are you calculating like what would be less than them? All right, how, how about you guys? Nine months. Nine months, all right, they win, even though they don't know. Come on up. <laughs> Normally it's the guy that can't remember. It was really funny to watch you space out there, but congratulations, <laughs> so, so you're very welcome. Enjoy that. All right. Well, we have been studying over these last weeks throughout all of Redemption Church, uh, the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a serious book. I think probably for you, I know for us at Redemption Gateway, it's been the kind of book that God is doing some heart surgery on us. There's not a lot of feel goods. There's not a lot of yucks. There's not a lot of, oh, this is, this, you know, is positive and encouraging. It's pretty serious and pretty intense. And the theme verse of the book of Judges is, uh, comes from chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, 25. It's actually the very last verse of the book, and it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this is what's amazing about the book of Judges, is that this book is as relevant today as when it was written. Think about that phrase. Everyone did what was right in his own 
eyes. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we don't say it that exact way, but in our culture, we say it this way. We say, you know what? I should be able to do what I want to do, when I want to do, with whoever I want to do it with. No one can tell me not to. And then if we're like really nice or kind or, you know, whatever, we might add on to it as long as nobody gets hurt. I can do what I want, when I want, with who I want. No one can tell me what to do as long as nobody gets hurt. Does that sound familiar? It's as old as the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what's so devastating about the book of Judges is not that mentality existing in the world, because that mentality has always existed in the world. What's so devastating about, about that mentality in the book of Judges is that that mentality existed within the people of God. The people who were called to be a light to the nations instead were becoming more and more like the nations as they adopted the mindset and the worldview and the perspective of the people around them and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the, the kind of history of, of Judges, it's an interesting point in the history of, of Israel. Uh, they're, they're kind of like a commonwealth. They're not quite a full nation. Uh, it's sort of like if you can imagine what the 13 colonies in the United States would have been like before, you know, before it all came together. So there's no federal government, but there's this sort of loose coalition of people. And from time to time, a judge will come on the scene and will appear and will provide some leadership. Uh, before this book, the people of Israel had just been kind of ushered into this new land by this guy, Joshua. And Joshua uh, really kind of said, hey, it's time to be faithful now. There was this whole recommitment moment. And actually, the way the book begins and the way the book before it ends is really with Joshua kind of, you know, driving his kid up to college, right? Some of you have had this moment where your, you know, your folks drive you up and they unpack your stuff and your dorm room is set. And then they say something like, behave yourself, right? Or your mom's crying or, you know, whatever it is, right? And it's like, come on, all right, you're on your own now. How's it gonna go? And, and the way the people of Israel acted when, when Joshua sort of dropped them off at the dorm was they said, we're, we're fine, we're committed. We're all in. We're totally committed to the Lord. We're not gonna wander from him. We're gonna be absolutely devoted. And in fact, we've seen the opposite. We've seen that the people of Israel, time after time after time, walk away from God. And what's amazing about this whole book is that what you see in this book is that God cares more about the people of God than they care about themselves. Have you ever been in a relationship like that? Where you feel like, I care more about that person than they do. Right? Maybe you see a, a friend and she's, she's headed down a path. She's got you know, some particular habits she's picking up or there's some relationships in her life that you're just going, that is destructive. And I'm warning her and I'm encouraging her and I'm trying to be there for her. I'm not trying to judge. I'm just trying to be helpful and encouraging and to say, hey, this, this is not gonna end well for you. And yet you realize I care more about her than she does. Some of you had this in your home growing up. I'm sad to say where you cared more about your parents' life and marriage and well-being than they did. And you experienced the devastation of being the one who cares more than them. That's what it's like for God in the book of Judges. The people of Israel are going down this path of disobedience and idolatry, worshiping and serving things other than God. And God's saying, I'm the one who cares the most here. 
Well, that brings us to Judges chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Judges 13. And uh, perhaps you've uh, seen this, uh, this image that we've been talking about throughout this series of this spiral, this downward spiral that's been happening throughout the book. Part of what happens in the book of Judges is this pattern where the people of Israel sin against God, and because they sin against God, God allows them to experience some servitude. Do we, I don't know if we have the... Uh you have that spiral? I don't know or not. Maybe if you have it, show it. But, but because of their sin, they start to experience servitude or oppression. Because of the pain of that oppression, they start to cry out to God. And they start to say, God, help us. God, come deliver us. God, be there for us. And God brings salvation to them. And then that salvation ends up leading uh, to a period of silence or a period of rest. Well, what we see in the opening verses of chapter 13 is that that cycle is breaking down. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So there you have the first two parts of the cycle. They've sinned again against God. And God has given them into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines were a neighboring uh, people that, that were conquering them. And it says they were conquered for 40 years. Now, every other part of the cycle that we've seen up to this point, we would know what comes next. Any of you that have been here, you know what's supposed to come next? What's supposed to come next is they're supposed to say, God, help us. God, deliver us. God, rescue us. We're sorry. We won't do it again. But we don't get that at all. Instead, it's a broken cycle where there's sin and there's servitude, but there's no crying out. There's no supplication. There's no asking for help. And there's no rest. So that's the setting that sets us up for what we're going to look at today, all right? So we're going to look at this whole uh, story about what God did through this man, Samson. And uh, the title of the message today is The Strong, Weak Man. The Strong, Weak Man. All right, I'm assuming, how many of you have ever binge-watched a show, right? Just about everybody. I mean, who hasn't done that, right? That's, it's just great to like just go, okay, over, I'm going to just... One show after the next. Here's what we're doing today is there's a new series out that we're talking about today called The Strong Weak Man. And we're going to binge watch five episodes. This story basically breaks down into five episodes of Samson's life, which we're calling The Strong Weak Man. So here's the first episode. Episode one is titled, For Unto Us a Child is Born. That's episode one. For Unto Us a Child is Born. Read with me in verse two. It says, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This to any Israelite who would be reading this would be incredibly familiar because this is a theme, this is a pattern that you see over and over and over in the Bible where one of God's people is not able to have children. The wife is barren. You see it with Abraham and his wife. You see it with Jacob and, uh, or I'm sorry, with uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And, and you see it all over the place. You see it with Hannah when she gives birth to Samuel. You see it later in the Bible when you see John the Baptist and you see uh, Mary and you see these things. This woman is barren. And God shows up through the angel and says, you're going to have a son. This is big. 
Right? If you've been reading and tracking with the book of Judges, you're thinking, we need a deliverer. We need someone that's not going to just keep us going through the cycle. We need someone that's going to be really devoted to God. We need someone that God is going to appoint in a big way. And so if you're reading this, you're thinking, this is the guy. This is it. It gets even better. Verse 4, therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, this has a lot of stuff that, for those of us that aren't familiar with Old Testament law and Jewish culture, just boom, just goes right over us. We don't, it's hard to understand. But, but what's going on here? What's, what's with this, hey, you can't drink and don't have a razor and the Nazarite? What's, what's that whole thing? Well, the book of Numbers describes a vow that a person could take called a Nazarite vow. And it would typically be the kind of thing someone would take for 30 days or 40 days, maybe 90 days. It was a short-term thing, and it was a voluntary thing, kind of like you might do Lent or you might do a 40-day fast or you might do something like that. And so a Nazarite vow was, was someone that was saying, for the next period of time, I'm going to consecrate myself to God. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to drink of the vine. Uh, the, another stipulation was that you were not going to touch or have any act, interaction with any dead bodies. That's an interesting one, right? So like if there's a mosquito on you, I guess it's like you have to flick it, right? You can't smash it, right? So nothing dead, right? But, but th that's the Nazarite vow. You're not going to cut your hair. You're not going to touch anything unclean. And you're not going to drink. And you would take that vow for, a, again, a short period of time as a way to consecrate yourself to God. Well, this child that's promised, who will be Samson... This is an amazing thing, because this isn't a voluntary vow. This is the angel saying, you're going to take this vow, and it's not a short-term thing. You're going to have it for your whole life. And so Israelites hearing this story would go, oh my gosh, this is the Savior. This is the Deliverer. This is the one we've been waiting for. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is the guy. Well, the rest of Judges 13 describes uh, Samson's father, Manoah, having this interaction with the angel and trying to make sure, is this really from God and that sort of thing. And in fact, it is from God and their son is born and his name is Samson and he's a Nazarite from birth. He's not to touch anything unclean. He's to keep growing his hair and he's not to drink. What we'll see is that very quickly, Samson disregards all of that. That takes us to chapter 14 and episode two. Episode two, we could call wedding disaster. Wedding disaster. It, those of you who stood because you had recently been married, I hope you didn't have a wedding like this, okay? Wedding disaster. Chapter 14 says, Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah, by the way, was a Philistine area. This was a, a place where the Jews were not really supposed to be. These were populated with all these foreigners. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Pay attention in this passage here. How many times it talks about seeing or it talks about eyes, okay? At Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Okay, that's one way to talk to your parents. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? 
right? Isn't there a relative? Of, I don't know if they're from West Virginia, part of Israel, or... Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And that's really the issue. Circumcision was the mark of God's people. Circumcision was the way that God got his people's attention. And the Philistines represent that they worship another God. And so they're saying, hey, the the issue isn't race here. It's not ethnicity here. The issue is, are, are you sure that it would be good to marry someone who worships a totally different God from you? Samson, isn't that going to lead you astray? Isn't that a bad idea? And it says in verse, end of verse three, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And there we have the first echo of that key verse. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this promised son, this one that we're hoping, oh, this is the deliverer. When we really begin to see him, we see that he's a sensual person who just wants what he wants and he wants it now and he wants it because it's right in his eyes. And then it says in verse four, and we'll talk about this more later, it says his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And then describes uh, what goes on as, as they go down to meet this woman. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Now, one of the things you're going to see in this story is that Samson has these incredible feats of strength, right? Which means a lot of times when you look at the art, actually, if you go study artwork that has Samson in it, he's always this giant sort of hulking figure, but I kind of imagine that he's probably just a more regular guy, which makes his strength all the more impressive. And here's the first instance of just an incredible feat of strength. This lion comes rushing toward him, verse six. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. (laughs) By the way, I just think that's funny. As one tears a young goat, you know? Right? Like, I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know what that means. Like, totally. Just funny, the biblical details. But he did not tell his father or mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So he's attacked by this lion. He kills it with his bare hands like you would a young goat, of course. And, and then doesn't tell anybody about it and goes and talks to her. It says then a little while later, he decided to come back and to talk to this woman again. And he decided, you know what? I'm gonna turn off and just see what happened to that lion. And so he goes over and sees the carcass of the lion. And inside this lion, a bunch of bees have made a, a, a nest, if you will. And there's a bunch of honey in there. And so he reaches inside this dead animal. And again, what was it not? right not to touch a dead animal he reaches inside it because the honey looks good and he eats some and he ends up giving some to his parents they don't know where it came from and so he gets down uh, to Timna and there's going to be this whole wedding and they uh, I don't know if it's because they're scared of him or what but they end up assigning to him 30 Philistine groomsmen that's a big bridal party. And these weddings would last for like a week or so. And Samson, maybe just to mess with them, or I don't know what he was doing, he offers them a riddle. And he tells them this riddle, and it has to do with the lion. And they can't figure it out, and they can't figure it out, and they can't figure it out. And finally, they come to the woman, and they say, hey, listen, if, if you don't like work your man over to get us the answer to this, we're going to kill you and your father. 
That's one thing that could go wrong in your wedding, right? When the groomsmen threaten to kill you. Um, And so she starts working him over. And it says in uh, verse uh, 16 of chapter 4, And Samson's wife went over to him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. Shall I tell you? Ladies, by the way, that's a bad sign. Someone's like, my mom and dad are more important than you. If I haven't told them, I'm not telling you. Like, run from him. Verse 17. She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, then she told the people, the riddle to the people. And so uh, they come back and they've figured it out. And he says, well, you only figured it out because you worked her over. Um, and part of the bet, the bet, if they, didn't, if, he didn't, if they solved the riddle, was he had to provide them with 30 pairs of clothing. So he goes down uh, to another Philistine town and he kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes and brings it back to these guys and says, okay, you can have, here, here's the bet, that, that's, that's fine. And it says at the end of chapter uh, four that because of Samson's delay and maybe the fact that he killed a bunch of relatives, I don't know, but, but this woman ended up being given off to Samson's best man. Wedding disaster, okay? So that's episode two. Episode three begins in chapter 15 and we could call it the Battle of Jawbone Hill. The Battle of Jawbone Hill, that's episode three. And so Samson apparently doesn't fully realize that this woman has been given off to his best man, and he's still kind of living at home, and she's still kind of living at home. This is so dysfunctional. And he decides, I'm going to go visit her, and he doesn't bring flowers. He brings a goat. Again, why wouldn't you bring a goat? And he brings a goat, and, and her dad says, no, you can't go. You can't, you can't go. He, she, he, she's been married off to this other guy. Well, that incenses him. He gets absolutely furious. And so he does what any jealous boyfriend would do. He decides to gather up 300 foxes. He goes out and he captures, this is amazing. If you don't, if you think the Bible's boring, you should read Judges. It is really interesting. So he goes and he finds 300 foxes and he ends up tying them up tail to tail and he lights a torch and he uses, he lights their tails on fire Right? And then he sends them out into the Philistine fields like all these mobile torches. Right? And they go out into the field and they just totally burn the thing down. And so, you know, that's kind of a problem. And so the people of the Philistines decide, you know, you know they, they end up killing off his wife and his dad, right? That relationship didn't end very well. And they're just totally upset. And so it, we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 9. It says this Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. The Philistines are like, we've had enough of this Samson guy. If he's gonna keep doing this, we're gonna attack the people of Israel. So they begin to do that. It says, verse 10, and the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, that's where Samson was living, and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. Right, again, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Verse 12, and they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Now this is a staggering thought. 
when we sort of zoom out of the specifics of this episode and we look at the book as a whole, right? What has happened all throughout this book? The people of Israel sinned. The people of Israel were oppressed and ruled by a foreign, foreign army. And because of that, the people of Israel cried out to God, God, help us. God, we don't want to serve these Philistines. We don't want to serve these Amorites. We don't want to serve these Canaanites. We so help us, God, right? And we, we already saw that that part didn't happen. They didn't cry out. And now, They've become so comfortable in their sin and in their rebellion and in their slavery that now when there's an opportunity to fight against the Philistines, they say, no, we don't want to. They say, we want to actually capture Samson and hand him over. We would rather stay ruled by the Philistines than experience freedom. That's how far the people of Israel have fallen. So they say, we've come down to bind you. Samson says, all right, just don't attack me yourselves. Verse 13, they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax, right? He goes all hulk on them like, right? And the ropes just rip. It became his flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands <laughs> and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Not an old one, a fresh one. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck a thousand men. It's the battle of Jawbone Hill. And he just kills all of these people. I mean, this is just a crazy, out of control, wild man. And yet the people of Israel weren't willing to fight the Philistines. So he says, well, I'll fight them. I'll fight them if you won't. And he kills a thousand of these men. There's an important point at the end of verse 15 uh, where Samson is very thirsty. It, it, it says chapter 15, verse 18. And he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, you've granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So Samson, after this battle, he's in thirst. And this is the first time in this story that he cries out to God. And when he calls out to God, what's his attitude? Did you see it? God, you're going to let me die out here? I'm so thirsty. Come on, God. Whoa. There's no, Lord, I know that I don't deserve anything. It's like, come on. It, it, it's just like the attitude of his parents. Get her for me. God, I'm thirsty. Now, please. That's his attitude. Well, uh, chapter 16 begins episode four. And episode four, we're titling, Nobody's That Stupid. <laughs> episode four is the part, if you've ever heard of the Samson story, you've heard of, of this, because chapter 16 is the story of Samson and Delilah. It begins with Samson again going to visit a prostitute, this other lady, and again leads to this big battle with the Philistines. Uh, but we see in chapter 16, verse 4, this. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. This is the first woman, by the way, that has been mentioned with a name uh, in terms of Samson's uh, you know, litany of, of people he's after. And it's the first time that it says that he loved her. So there's something different here. Maybe this isn't just lust. Maybe it's something deeper. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. 
and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, there's a part in chapter, uh, a couple chapters that we'll see, I think chapter 17 that we'll see next week, where there's a guy who is given a salary, a year salary of 10 pieces of silver. They offer her 1,100 pieces for each of the Lord of the Philistines. Most scholars say there are at least five, maybe eight. So this is like the equivalent of millions of dollars. They're saying, we will give you millions of dollars if you will capture him. If you will tell us the secret of his strength so that we may capture him and subdue him and kill him. In verse six, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Right? And, and you're like, no one, is anyone like, I mean, seriously, would a man ever be so stupid that with a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of sex, he would just give in to something like that? Would a man, I mean, of course, right? Like, I mean, you're like, this is so stupid. And yet, yeah, that, that's kind of how it works. And, and, and maybe it's kind of going, hey, I'm not going to tell anybody, but, but I just want to know. I mean, it's this big secret. And if you won't share your biggest secrets with me, then we can't really know each other. And come on, Samson, what, what is it? So he makes up a story and he says, well, here's the thing. It's seven fresh bowstrings. Get seven fresh bowstrings, tie me up, and I'll become like any other man. So what do you know? He gets drunk, he passes out, he's hanging out with her, he wakes up, all of a sudden he's tied up in seven fresh bowstrings. There's Philistines in the room ready to attack him. He busts out of the seven fresh bowstrings, kills all the Philistines, and she says, you made such a, you embarrassed me. You said it was seven fresh bowstrings and it isn't. What is it really? Don't you love me? He says, okay, it's a new rope. Tie me up with a new rope and I'll, I can't fight it off. Well, next thing you know, I mean, no one's as stupid, right? It's like, next thing you know, he's tied up in a new rope. The Philistines are there. He busts out of the rope. He kills the Philistines. She goes, how can you embarrass me like this? What is it really? He says, okay, here's the deal. There's seven braids in my hair. He's getting closer now. There's seven braids in my hair, and if you kind of tie them up with a sewing machine type thing and you just do that, then I just, I, I'll become like anyone else. And sure enough, she fall, he falls asleep on her lap, and there it happens, and he wakes up, and he's fine just the same. They're using each other. You see that, right? She's using him for information. He's using her for this need of this relationship he has. Maybe even, some uh, commentators speculate, maybe Samson is even using her for kind of a thrill of danger, He's become kind of hooked on the adrenaline. But she's had enough of this. And so it says in chapter 16, verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard, the NIV translates that, when she nagged him day after day, Ladies, you know that if sex doesn't work, nagging usually does. She pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
That's all she needed to hear. And so when Delilah saw that he told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he's told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in her hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, right? This is just the same thing. It's happened again. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. And then here's a glimpse of hope, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Last episode. It's called Victory Through Death. Samson's now a laughing stock, right? His eyes are gone. He doesn't, not able to do much. And the Philistines decide they're gonna have this huge party. They invite thousands of people, all of the royals, all of the wealthy, all of the people with influence. And they have this huge party at the temple to Dagon. Dagon was one of their gods that they, that they worshiped. And they thought, you know what? This is a great victory from Dagon. Dagon has given Samson into our hands. Let's celebrate, let's party, let's do this. And along the way at the party, they say, you know what? Let's bring Samson out. Let's, let's mock him a little bit. Let's, let's bring him out for some entertainment. And so he comes out and he's blind and, and he's there. They lead him out and they're surely hurling insults at him and mocking him and all this sort of stuff. And it says that uh, he, he began to kind of feel around for the pillars that he knew would be holding up something like this because all these people were kind of up above on this sort of balcony. And it says in verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now I find a great deal of hope in that verse, right? Because how has Samson talked to God the one other time before? God, I'm thirsty, come on. He doesn't even call him God, he just says like, look. And here he says, oh Lord God, oh sovereign king, please remember me. You don't have to. You could, you could pass me by, but please remember me. Help me just this one time. And it says, verse 29, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. The strong, weak man. That's the story of Samson. I hope you'll go back and read it. It's even more interesting than I was able to talk about. What are we supposed to do with all that? This has been one of the questions we've been asking as we just go through this, this book, is go, okay, we have these stories, we have these things. There are some of these places that start to connect with us, where we realize we're not that different, actually, from the people of this time. What should we be learning as well? So I've got four things that we need to learn from this, four lessons. Here's the first one, is that God sovereignly governs the sinful actions of sinful people. Look back, if you have your Bible there, look back at chapter 14, verses three and four. 
right? This is where Samson says, she's right for me. I want her. Mom and dad say, are you sure? Is, is that really a good idea? Samson says, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. And then it says in verse four, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Because think about this. What, what has happened at the beginning of the book, the people of God are called to be separate and distinct and holy from all the other nations. By the end of this episode, the people of Israel are so comfortable with the Philistines that they'd just rather live among them. It's almost as if the nation of Israel is going to become extinct unless somebody gets in there and creates tension with the Philistines. Does that make sense? Everybody's so comfortable with, with it. And so given that dynamic, God sovereignly uses the sinful, arrogant, sensual, sin-laden Samson to accomplish his bigger purposes. This is actually something you see all throughout the Bible. The, the theological sort of technical term for it is concurrence. The idea that we make real choices, that we are really responsible for it. We're not puppets, we really make these decisions and God is really at the same time governing the universe in and through those decisions. It's a very hard thing to understand, but you see it all over the place. And we've got to understand it, or, else, or not, we can't fully understand it, but we've got to embrace it and even embrace the mystery of it. Otherwise, we'll never be able to fully understand how all these things that seem to go wrong in our lives can be working for good. But it's all through the Bible. In 2 Chronicles, there's a story of this King Rehoboam. Rehoboam's the one who, you know, he asks all the wise older people for counsel. And he says, I don't want to listen to them. And he asks all his buddies and he wants to do what they want. And it says in 2 Chronicles 10, so the king did not listen to the people. He didn't listen to the advice. For, that, by the way, that was sinful of him to do. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. We see the same thing in the story of Job. The story of Job, you have all of these Chaldeans who come and they ransack Job's property and they kill a bunch of his children and there's all of these horrible sins that happen to the family of Job. And here's how Job responds to it. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you go, what? The Lord took away? No, the Chaldeans took away. The Chaldeans pillared. The Chaldeans murdered. Job, how can you say the Lord took away? And then actually the author, because he knows that question is in your head, says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Why? Because God sovereignly rules the universe in and through the sinful actions of sinful people. Jonah, you see the same thing. In the book of Jonah, the people on the boat pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea and it ceases from his raging. And then Jonah prays to God and he says, you cast me into the deep, God. Well, who was it? The people or God? Yes. Yes. Do you want the best example that God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes through the sinful actions of people? Jesus. Jesus, the death 
of Jesus is the ultimate example of this. It says in Acts 2, the apostle Peter preaching, says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God sovereignly governs the sinful actions of people. Which means that even when people hurt you and even when people sin against you and even when people commit horrible atrocities throughout the world, God can and does use it for his purposes. And you go, well, I don't get it. And I say, me neither. And nowhere in the Bible does God explain it. And it might be, maybe, just arrogant of us to think that if he did explain it, we could actually comprehend it. There's mystery here, right? This is neither fatalism, which says your choices don't matter, everyone's just a robot, it's not that, nor is it humanism that says our choices are everything. This is something totally different. This is a mystery. It's nuanced, it's complex. God determines all things through our real choices. That's the first thing we gotta see. The next things won't be quite as long, maybe. We'll see, Vince. Here's the second thing. Beware, this is starting to get more personal now, less theological, more into your daily life. Beware of relationships built around using instead of serving. That's what this whole relationship with Samson and Delilah is, right? It's totally built on using, not on serving, right? He's using her for sex. She's using him for money. You're like... Nothing has changed in thousands of years, right? This is how it works. Men use, use women in these various ways to get what they want. Women use men to get what they want. It is so dysfunctional. It is so unhealthy. So as you think about so many of you single and clearly dateless tonight. <laughs> so if next year you want to have a date on Valentine's Day, you might think, okay, what... What's my criteria here in, in thinking through and forming relationships? What am I aiming at? Am I gonna go for the person that just looks best standing next to me so that all my buddies are like, dude, you outpunted your coverage. How'd you get her? Like, that's amazing. I don't know, no one would say that your age, but. What is this about? Is this looking for someone who makes you look good, looking for someone who's impressive, looking for someone that your parents will like, looking for someone who, or, or, or are you looking for someone that you could serve? But even that's dangerous because sometimes some people just so wanna serve that the way that they actually use someone is by having to always be needed. So they're gonna find someone who's really needy. Oh, here's this poor guy, I can, I can fix him up. I can make him better, I can improve him. He'll be my project. That's not serving him, that's serving you. So much of our relationships in general, but love relationships in particular are so selfish. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He distinguished between need love, 
where it's for you, and gift love, where it's serving. Here's what he said. Need love cries from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Gift love longs to give her happiness. Do you get the difference? Are you pursuing relationships out of need love? I need this to feel good. I need this to prop up my image. I need this to not have to be so lonely. I need this for some sort of physical fulfillment. I need this to impress my parents or friends. Or are you interested in love and romance and relationships because of what you can give? Because of how you can serve? It's a totally different thing. And the habits that we form, even as single people, really shape the way that we approach these relationships. So guys, for instance, your continual use of pornography is training you to use people, not serve them. It is building in your mind and in your heart and I think physiologically in your brain from some of the research I've looked at, it is building in you a habit, a pattern, a lifestyle of viewing women not to serve them and love them and tenderly wash them with the water of the word, which is what husbands are called to do, but instead to use them. Right, and this is what pornography is. Pornography is saying, I wanna specify exactly the kind of person I wanna look at. And I know that this isn't just a guy thing, but I'm talking to guys because there are guys who have looked at porn and there are liars. <laughs> and it's training you to use people, not serve them. And some of you go, well, I'm battling and I'm trying and I'm fighting and I'm, I'm really working at it, but I just keep failing and I keep failing. Listen, some of that is just the, the difficult nature of sin and it is a fight and it is difficult and it is not easy. I'm not gonna stand up here and say it is, but let me ask you this. Is perhaps even the reason why you're struggling to win that battle because you're struggling selfishly? You're talking about my struggle and my sin and my defeat and how my... Porn makes me feel bad about myself. And you're stuck in a quagmire of selfishness instead of thinking about how this sin is training you to not love people, to use them instead of serve them. And ladies, this whole dynamic of these relationships, you can use you can use your beauty, we see Delilah do that. You can use your words. You can use all sorts of things. And let me just tell you this, ladies, while we're talking about relationships and sex and these things, as the dad of three daughters, your body was created by God to be dessert, not the appetizer. And you can use it as an appetizer to entice and to get what you want and to bring a guy in and maybe to use it to feel better or use it to feel a kind of closeness that you don't have in other relationships or that you wish you had or whatever. But, but, but God made you the dessert, 
not the appetizer. Don't sell yourself short. Don't form a pattern of using your body and your looks and your sexuality instead of serving. Here's the third thing. There's a little Samson in all of us and we must destroy it or it will destroy us. There's a little Samson in all of us and I didn't know whether it should be it or he, so some of you English majors can tell me later. Either the little Samson in you will destroy you or you will destroy him. What do I mean? There's a little Samson in all of us. Well, think about Samson in this story. Samson is sensual, right? He is the definition of a sensual person, totally controlled by his senses. I see that, I want it. Ooh, there's some honey, I'll take it. Get her for me, she's right in my eyes. I didn't like how that went. Let me get 300 foxes to burn, right? This is totally sensual. This is totally just ruled by, by appetite and by senses. And that part of you, and that part of me, that is sensual and just governed by what I want and by what I feel and what I crave, that will kill you. That will destroy your relationship with God. Let me ask you this. Do you ever just say no to something that you could have that's a good thing? just to say no to it, just to prove you could. Right, like for me, for me, it's dessert. So I'm gonna sometimes, not often enough, but sometimes I'm gonna just say no to it just to prove to myself I can. Or are you just governed by your appetite for whatever it is? So Samson is sensual. Here's the second thing about Samson that's in you and me is Samson's unteachable. He's unteachable. He wants what he wants. Samson, are you sure that's a good idea? Get her for me. He's totally unteachable. And so let me ask you this. When you go to people who are in your life, are you seeking wisdom from them or are you seeking affirmation? Do you go to someone and say, here's this decision I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm looking at doing after school. I'm thinking about dating this person. I'm thinking about pursuing this career. When you ask those questions, are you asking because you want actual wisdom? And you might even invite it if someone would say, hey, that's a bad idea, you shouldn't do that. Or are you asking because you just want them to affirm what you already plan to do? If it's the second, if you're just looking for affirmation, you're not teachable. And that lack of teachability is pride. And the scripture says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's a third thing that's in Samson, that's in you and me is Samson's a loner. He's a loner. He's a one-man wrecking crew. Isn't it interesting here that Samson never one time leads an army in battle against the Philistines? It's always just him. He's alone fighting the lion. He's alone killing the 30 Amalekites. He's alone with the jawbone. He's alone pushing down the temple of Dagon. He's a loner. He wants what he wants. He's not going to invite people in to his life to speak into it. Is that how you are? And, and listen, I, I know that very few people are truly like loner loners. They don't have anyone in their life. But, but are you just experiencing crowded loneliness? Where there's people around you all the time? 
but none of them have been invited to speak into your life. None of them have been invited to speak into your vulnerabilities. None of them have been invited to go, hey, that's not a good idea. Today's a mentor Sunday, and you're gonna have a chance later. Vincent, I think, is gonna lead you, or Anthony, gonna lead you through an opportunity to connect with a mentor, and that's an incredible ministry that you have here at Flagstaff. And you should pursue it, because the Samson in you is a loner who's unteachable. And a mentor relationship creates an environment for you to begin to work that out. And the Samson in you and the Samson in me is externally impressive and inwardly bankrupt. There's a little Samson in all of us. Here's the last thing. We've got to see this throughout this whole book of Judges. This is the last judge we see. Next week is going to, if you thought this story was interesting and gnarly, next week is insane. Come back next week. Vince will have to do that one. But this is the last judge we see. And all of these judges have been pointing to something. Here's what it is. Look to Jesus, the flawless Savior who gave himself to crush his enemies. Samson is a savior, right? The angel told his mother, he will begin to save Israel. And he does, he begins to, right? There's enough just tension between Israel and the Philistines because of Samson that they're not full, Israel isn't wiped out. Israel isn't assimilated. And, and, And Samson, this flawed, sensual, loner, unteachable, externally impressive, inwardly bankrupt guy is still a savior. And he crushes his enemies on his own, with his arms extended, which points to the flawless Savior who crushed his enemies with his arms extended, Jesus Christ. The one hero that all of these people we've been looking at week after week after week is pointing to. Jesus, the flawless one. So look to him. You're struggling with porn? He's crushed it on the cross. You're struggling with insecurity and you're constantly pursuing wrong relationship choices? He crushed it on the cross. You're confused about the suffering in your life and the pain in your life and you don't know how God could possibly be using it for good? Look to the cross. The cross is the place where you see God rules over all things for his glory and my good. Look to Jesus. I want to um, pray in just a moment, but I want to put this question on the screen. We're going to let you have a time to just reflect after I pray. Here's the question to reflect on is, how do you need Jesus to save you from yourself? How do you need Jesus to save you from yourself? Let me pray, and then you have a few minutes to reflect on that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it instructs and challenges us. And Father, I pray that we could look to Jesus, the one who crushed his enemies so that we would not be crushed. God, guide us and direct us. Lead us to be more fully devoted to you, not just on the outside, but on the inside, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.